0: faith is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you've joined us. This is the place where we challenge each other, stretch each other in God's direction, stretch toward our high calling, because we want to have faith in God. We want to have absolute confidence in God's trustworthiness. And that's the way we think of faith when we think of it here. Most all of the time, that's a helpful way to think about faith. So if you ask yourself, do I have faith, ask yourself, do I have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? Well, that's a measure of faith. Now, it's hard to quantify faith. I'm not really interested in doing that because faith isn't about that. The scriptures teach us that faith is about confidence in God. So do you have confidence that God is looking out for your well-being? Do you have confidence that God wants to bless you? Do you have confidence that God is for you, not against you? Well, all of those things play into the way we understand God and the way we then live out our lives. And over and over we remind ourselves and people remind us that God loves us. But then when we think about it in terms of is God for us or against us, we sometimes stop and think, well, now, wait a minute. Uh, I'm not sure I measure up, and if I don't measure up, God's against me. Well, there is a certain point at which God will sort out the faithful from the unfaithful. There's no question about that. But God is not interested in finding reasons for you to be among the unfaithful. He's looking for reasons to include you in the faithful. He's looking To love you, to bless you, to give you grace, to help you be that person that walks with God in faithfulness and that person who has absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. You know, you can't can't have it both ways. If you think God loves you, then he has to be for you. And if you think God's your enemy or your judge, or you fill in the blank, then you have trouble accepting that God loves you. Now, I don't, don't want to be misunderstood here. God's intention toward people is love. Yes, there will come a day when God will have to judge the faithful from the unfaithful. There's no question the Bible is clear about that. But right now, he's rooting for you to be faithful. He wants you to be faithful. He wants to love you, and he wants you to love him. Him. And that's where we sometimes have a little problem. We get so caught up in the do's and the don'ts that we miss the love idea. And so I want to revisit that a little bit from last week and help us understand that. And then I want to get into where we are in the story of Jesus. We haven't talked about that for a while, but but we follow these days the story of Jesus so we can understand who Jesus is and what he did. And we start back at Advent and we continue through. Well, I'm not going to get ahead of myself on that, but we're going to talk about where we are in the story of Jesus today. Before we get into all that, let me just make sure that you understand who I am a little bit. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor of a local church here in Cape Coral, Florida, Diplomat Wesleyan Church. We are a church like a lot of churches. We have a lot of good people, we're fortunate we don't have sorry rascals in our church, if you know what I mean. Well, we really don't. We have a, a very supportive group of people. They care about each other. They don't find fault. They don't nitpick. None of that kind of stuff. And we're trying to live out faithfulness to God. That's our intention. That's our desire. And we're no no greater than any other church. We're just a regular bunch of people faithfully following god we have our how should we say foibles can you use that word we have our peculiarities sometimes but overall we're just people trying to follow god faithfully and people who support each other when we need that support and i appreciate that about our church and and one of the other things i said this to the church the last sunday I said one of the things that we need to recognize is that, that we do very well and that not all churches do very well. So I just want to brag a little bit upon them and help, help you understand the context of, of our situation here at our church. But we have talked about this openly for a while now. I don't remember how, a couple of years at least, of how important it is that we hear from God, that we hear what God has to say to us, whether we like it, or not now we don't expect to not like what god says but sometimes god might say things to us that hmm require something of us we didn't know would be required or that correct us in a way that we didn't really want to be corrected i think you get the idea and our church has said and we have agreed together that they want me as the pastor to speak from the scriptures and to tell them my best understanding of what God has for us these days, whether they like it or not. You see, we're we're convinced that we need to hear from God. I don't claim to do it perfectly. They wouldn't say I do it perfectly. But we have agreed that we want to hear what God has to say to us. We don't want to censor what God has to say to us. And there are occasional glimpses that I get into churches that really don't want their pastors to talk about certain things. And I'm not going to get into what those issues are or aren't. That's not the point. The point is, I want you to know that our church is really good about saying to me, tell us the truth as you understand it from the Bible. We want to hear it. I'm sure if some people had some big differences with me on that, or they really got a little irritated at me, then we'd have a conversation. But it wouldn't be a mean spirited conversation it would be pastor are you sure you got that right or help me understand this better or it might be pastor you missed that when you got that completely wrong but it wouldn't be from the sense of oh boy we're going to get him now it wouldn't be judgmental and critical it would be we want to keep the sacred story straight and i think that's important for us in these days i think it's important for all churches So I hope you will cultivate that at your church. Uh, You do go to church, don't you? Oh, good. Glad to hear that. You need to find a church that's closest to the Bible. And you need to be a part of that church. You need to commit yourself to that church. You don't go until you get your nose out of joint because the pastor said something or you disagree with something. You go and you participate. You make friends. You become a friend. All of those things... But you need to be a part of a church. And in that church, you need to talk to each other and you need to say for your own well-being, you say to people, I want to hear what the pastor has to say and what God has said to him from the Bible so that I can benefit in my life. I want to hear it, whether I like it or not, because I want to know what God has to say to us today. And that's more important to me than liking it. Okay, our church is good at that. I just thought you ought to know that. And so, if if you want to think of us as exceptional, that may be an exceptional uh, or me, an exceptional quality, but we're still just regular folks trying to live the best way we can. So, so let's circle back to this idea that that we touched on pretty much last week. But I want to make sure we we bring that around again so we don't forget it because so often we are motivated or try to be motivated to, to do what's right because we're afraid God's going to get us. And I want us to begin to think that, that God wants to love us. He's not giving us a checklist of things that we must do or a checklist of things that we must not do. He certainly spells that out in the Bible. There are some very clear directions. But it's all based upon God wanting us to love him to love him. Now, just to kind of set this up, and I want to give you a a really contemporary illustration of that, but remember Peter? Peter who denied that he even knew Jesus? If you go to Israel, you can visit that very spot where Peter denied Jesus, and you can walk down the steps that Peter ran down when he realized what had happened and fled into the night. But later, after the resurrection... Jesus met Peter in Galilee, and he asked Peter a very specific question. And I think this is the, the, the question we need to ask ourselves, because this is the heart of what God is about. He asked Peter, do you love me? Ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? See, Jesus was emphasizing that that he needed to help Peter recognize that his motivation was love. And that's what God has always wanted. If you, if you need to further consider that, think of it this way. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, what did he say? Love God and love your neighbor. He summed up two passages from the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Those two, first love God, then love your neighbor. So our reminder today is that God is really about wanting people to love him. And you can see that as you look at the Old Testament. You can see that in so many of the stories that that God was reaching out to his people saying, in effect, won't you just love me? I want to bless you. Why won't you love me? And so I came across this idea in a book written many years ago by a man named Scott McKnight called The Jesus Creed, and he talks about this idea of loving God and loving people. And in one chapter of the book, he talks about the sacredness of love. We don't often think about love being sacred. Now, we do when we're betrayed. If you love someone and they betray you, oh boy, we consider that a sacred violation. We may not say it's sacred, but it cuts to the core of us. And some some of you may have been de- betrayed like that. And you know that there's a sacredness to love. And in the book, Scott McKnight quotes a man named Lewis Smeads. And, and Lewis Smedes says, in making a commitment of love to another, and by the way, that's what love is. It's a commitment. It's not this heart-pounding feeling. It might involve emotion, but when you make a commitment of love to another, says Lewis Smeads. We surrender our freedom, and we surrender our individuality. We need to think about that, because these days we're all about, I have my rights. Well, I understand that in the proper understanding of of our civil government. We do have rights, and they are not to be violated. But at the same time, Lewis Smead says we surrender our freedom, and we surrender our individuality when we make a commitment of love. Now think about that. Isn't that what we just celebrated Mother's Day? Isn't that what a mother does when she loves her children? She surrenders some of her freedom because it's a lot of work to take care of a little one. And mothers give that up out of love for that baby. And isn't that what God is asking us to do? Give up some of our freedom to love Him? And that's why when He says, don't do this, it shouldn't be considered a burden. It should be considered... Well, I agreed to love God, so yes, of course, I'm going to surrender some of my freedom, some of my individuality, because of love. That's the sacred nature of love, and we give that up voluntarily all the time out of love for people, for groups, for projects that we want to work on. We love doing the work, and so we give up a certain amount of freedom to get that done. Well, the other side of that is that when love is betrayed, it's, it's heart-wrenching. And I think we forget that that's the way God feels when, when His people betray Him. And that's why I want to remind us about that before we get into today's look at the Scriptures. In this same book, in the same chapter, there's a letter reproduced by a lady named Lori Hall comes from from a book she wrote an affair of the mind and in the book she painfully details the difficult time she had with her husband jack jack suffered from many temptations sex addiction shallow love of all kinds they kept trying to hang on to it and she would endure dinners alone and she gave excuses to the children about why their dad wasn't there and she knew many times where he was and what he was doing. Finally, she separates from him. He had betrayed the relationship. And this book is a collection of letters that she wrote describing what she was going to. And one of her letters is reproduced and here's what she said. Lori's letter to Jack. Here I am three weeks into our separation. "'I didn't sleep much last night. "'The bed seemed so cold without you in it. "'Finally, somewhere in the wee hours, "'I dozed off fitfully. "'When I awoke this morning, "'I thought back to that first morning "'when I awakened in your arms, "'so happy, so hopeful "'of all the bright tomorrows we were going to have. "'Yet, here I am, twenty years later, thinking about how I might never again lie in your arms. Besides loneliness, I feel sick, like I'm going to throw up. And I tell myself I have to be strong for the children, but that's not all I feel. What I feel mostly is anger. I'm mad. I don't understand why you won't let go of the pornography and the hookers. How could you choose them over the children? How could you choose them over me? You were all I ever wanted. How come I wasn't enough for you? And I want you to especially hear those last two sentences. You were all I ever wanted. How come I wasn't enough for you? You see, as I look at the scriptures and I read the Old Testament and I try to understand what God is saying to us in our days so that we can understand how to relate to him. That's what I hear God saying. I see it in the stories of, of God longing for his people to be faithful in the Old Testament. I hear God wondering why he wasn't enough for them. I hear God saying, I just wanted to love you and I wanted you to love me. and yet. Israel didn't, and ultimately suffered exile. But God kept on loving. His love kept on reaching, and it still reaches today. And it's reaching all the way to where you are. And I think the question is simple. Will you love him? It's really not about all these do's and don'ts. Yeah, there are clear do's and don'ts. I get that. But, it's, but that's not a problem. It's never an issue if we love God. God. It's not a problem. So do we love God? Are you willing to give up some of your freedom and individuality to love God? Isn't God enough? Do you really need that other whatever it is? Isn't God enough? I think that's his question for us. Am I not enough? Will we love him? And the answer is yes, We will. We will give up. We will surrender. We will follow in the way he leads because he is enough. He is more than enough for all of us. Well, that's the context of love that we need to keep in mind for all of our understanding of the Bible. And I want us to now move into the story of Jesus that we want to look at today and catch up with the story of Jesus. We did a little bit remembering Peter and what he did when he betrayed Jesus and then encountered Jesus. And he said to Jesus, I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And we affirmed that ourselves. So let's just remind ourselves how we got to where we are in the context of the story of Jesus. So we tell in our church every year the story of Jesus beginning with Advent. That begins either the last Sunday of November or the first Sunday of December, it depends how the calendar works, but Advent begins and we begin to anticipate the birth of Jesus. We anticipate Christmas and we also anticipate the second coming of Jesus, for we know what happened in history and we know what will happen in history. Jesus did come, and we celebrate that great gift to us, and he will come, and we anticipate that great day of the Lord when he will make all the wrong things right. And so we do that with Advent. That leads up to Christmas. Now, some people think, well, once you have Christmas Day, that's it. Well, no. We have a Christmas Eve service, and then the season we call Christmas begins. And so for a little while, a short while, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. You know, when a child is born to a family, they don't say, okay, he's here, and then kind of go on like things have always been. No, they they celebrate. People come to see the baby, all the things that go on. And we want to do that too, because Jesus was born, God's gift to us. And then we begin to follow the life of Jesus. And different events pop up depending on the year that we're studying. And we always talk about the wise men, because that's the great revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles. And it reminds us that Jesus, while he came in the Jewish context, the Hebrew people, the Old Testament context, he came for everyone. He came for Jews and he came for Gentiles. And the fact that he was revealed to the wise men reminds us of that. And we rejoice. We're glad for that. Well, Jesus grows up. There are other incidents in his life. He goes to the temple one time and ends up having quite an involved conversation with the temple leaders. Uh, quite amazing for a child of his age. He continues to grow and to to develop until it's time for his ministry actually to take place, and he travels to visit John the Baptist at the Jordan River, where he's baptized. Interesting thing about baptism relates to where we're going to end up today, so let's make sure we remember. So Jesus comes to John and asks to be baptized, and John finally agrees John baptizes Jesus, and as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends. And looking carefully at the scriptures, we understand that the heavens are actually torn open. So here we have an interface between heaven and earth as the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven, and we generally think of that as a dove in the form of a dove the bible talks about so we think of that perching on jesus shoulder but actually what really happened was the holy spirit came down and entered into jesus so now we know he possesses a holy spirit the holy spirit from god so later on when he's accused of having a an evil spirit we know better because we were there as it were in pages of the, of the bible in the story of jesus well he conducts his earthly ministry he heals the sick, he feeds the hungry, he travels around and teaches, and people are regularly amazed at his teaching. And he talks to them about forgiveness, he talks to them about honoring God, he talks about their responsibilities to God, talks about their responsibilities to each other. He gives all kinds of teachings that fascinate people and amaze people and infuriate certain people where he also manages to develop some enemies. The Jewish leaders begin to see him as a threat and competition to what they're doing. There's a lot of things related to that that we don't need to get into right now. Questions about their motive. Maybe they were trying to preserve God's people and they just missed it. Maybe they had become so zealous about the do's and don'ts that they couldn't imagine that Jesus would come and say, that it was about loving God and loving your neighbor. All of that's interesting, fascinating, helpful. But Jesus goes about teaching people. He walks on water in one instance, calms a storm. It's really quite remarkable, some of the things that go on. And all of these get people's attention, like, what kind of man is this? He even raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, that's a dramatic story in itself. But it's not long after that, that Jesus enters into Jerusalem triumphantly. We call it Palm Sunday. We call his entry the triumphal entry. So he enters into Jerusalem in triumph to the praise of the people. He walks into the city. He looks around, then leaves and goes back to Bethany. That week unfolds. We call it Holy Week. And Jesus is in and out of Jerusalem, conducting his ministry, teaching the people. At one point, he cleanses the temple. We call it the cleansing of the temple. He was really upset because they had turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. whole interesting story related to that and how we need to understand that incident. It's not about Jesus being angry. It's not about Jesus being violent. Don't be led down those paths. It's about Jesus wanting to preserve what God had intended the temple to be and to preserve its function. He didn't want it to be diminished. He wanted to hold up. All the things that God intended it to be, and and the scriptures say, to be a house of prayer for the nations. The week unfolds, his enemies plot against him. Jesus gathers with his followers in the upper room for a Passover meal. The Passover meal, he begins to teach them and to explain to them what must happen. And he introduces what we call Holy Communion. In other words, from that Passover meal and that ritual with which they would have all been familiar, he takes two elements, the bread and the wine, and reminds people that this is his body, this is his blood. His body broken for them, his blood shed for them. It's not likely that they really understood all that he was talking about. They didn't argue with Jesus at that point. But it was a pivotal moment. In Christian history. Well, they finished the Passover meal, they leave Jerusalem and go down and across the Kidron Valley and up the not-too-high Mount of Olives. They go into the garden there. There were a grove of olive trees. There was a wine, or not, pardon me, not a wine press, an olive press there, and they gathered there. It was a familiar place to Jesus and his disciples where they could get away from Jerusalem Jesus goes farther into the, into the trees, prays to God that this cup would pass from him, and he has the opportunity to escape. He could have left, and no one could have found him. would have been very easy for Jesus just to go up over the hill to Bethany and gotten away from Jerusalem and the cross, but he didn't. He turned the other way when Judas brought the authorities and he gave himself. He surrendered himself to the authorities. You know how the story unfolds. They question him. Finally, they take him to Pilate and call for his crucifixion. Pilate agrees. And on Good Friday, Jesus is taken to the cross and executed. The Bible says he became sin for us. He took on himself the sin of the world. That is a very significant understanding of the cross, that Jesus went to take on himself the sin of the world. He took on himself the covenant penalty For breaking the covenant. The covenant penalty was death. When you break the covenant, you're worthy of death. And he took on himself the penalty of death because people had broken God's covenant. And he gave himself to die. They buried him in a tomb provided by Joseph of Arimathea. You remember the story. They waited all through what we call Holy Saturday. And then on what we call Easter Sunday... They went to the tomb and discovered that Jesus had risen. He was not there. And the whole story takes on an enormously expanded understanding when the disciples begin to realize that Jesus was alive. Makes all the difference. And by the way, in case nobody has said to you, to this to you for a while, never forget, always remember, resurrection never ends. We tend to think about it once a year at Easter. Keep thinking about it. Resurrection never ends. Well, the story unfolds. The disciples see Jesus on a couple of occasions. And then it comes time for the end of Jesus' time on earth. He gathers the disciples together, and they go out of Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives. And probably someplace on the Mount of Olives, perhaps on the downslope on the other side, going toward Bethany, Jesus talks to them for the last time. He blesses them. And he ascends to the Heavenly Father. He goes back to what we refer to as heaven. That's not a very exact description, but it's maybe the best we need. He goes back to be with the Father, with the promise that they should go into the city and wait that the Holy Spirit would be coming. And we want to unpack that story of Ascension a little bit more today on the program. A lot of times we get focused on certain elements of Jesus' story, and we forget others. But we don't want to forget Ascension this time. Because Jesus said that if he didn't go back to the Father, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. Now We often get all caught up in this idea of the Holy Spirit coming, but we sometimes forget that that was all dependent on Jesus leaving. And sometimes people think, well, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was still here? Well, in some ways, yeah. But Jesus said it's better for us if he goes back to the Father. And he did. And it is better for us because the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Advocate, the promise of a Comforter, the promise of a Counselor was fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a long journey we've gone on so far, a lot of stuff to cover, but we've got more and we're gonna pick it up in just a few minutes. So I wanna encourage you to stay with us. We're gonna take some deeper look at the Ascension and the events leading up to that and help us make sense of the story of Jesus. I'll be right back.
1: Whether you're an independent, a Democrat or a Republican, One thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix Rx. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Did you know that doctors and nurses have been swabbing their noses with povidone iodine to protect from airborne threats like colds, flus, and pandemic-era strains for decades? CoFixRx took that idea and made a more complete nasal formula with lasting cleansing effects. Maybe you're traveling soon or going to an event. Are you concerned somebody nearby might be sick? Maybe the office or classroom stresses you out. Get yourself a bottle of CoFixRx nasal solution. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a CoFixRx nasal solution cleanse. That's COFIXRX.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. The pandemic may be
2: over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD.
1: AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, The liberty and justice for all.
0: All right, we are back. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is the place where we believe faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. and We've been challenging ourselves to have confidence that God is trustworthy. And today we talked about how God has every intention and desire to love us. And in fact, he loved us when we were still enemies of God. And his longing is for us to return that love. That's why Jesus said that the, all of the commandments are represented in that Single statement of love God and love your neighbor, and now we're and then we talked about the story of Jesus and located the ascension in the story of Jesus, and we're going to talk some more about the ascension today, and I want us to to begin that by looking at the scriptures. Now, the ascension, in short, in case you're not really sure how how or or why I'm using that word the way it is, the ascension is when Jesus ascended rose from the earth back to be with the father and we see that recorded in a couple of places in Luke and in Acts and i want to read both places actually it's quite interesting that the the story in Luke is written by Luke and the story in Acts is written by Luke so we get two two tellings of the same story you might say that's kind of interesting phenomenon isn't it well Luke chapter 24 few verses describe what was going on, and we want to start with verse 44. Then he said to them, and it's Jesus speaking, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands he blessed them, While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. So there, in just a few verses, we see or hear the story of Jesus from Luke chapter 24. I want to turn over now to Acts we're going to do Acts chapter 1, because that's where we see the story of Jesus. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. So Acts chapter 1, and I failed to say I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, Update Edition. I want to encourage you to read the Bible that you will use, that you will understand, and that becomes meaningful to you. I use this for a specific reason, because it helps me. I want you to take the English translation of the Bible that helps you and there are a lot of good ones. New International Version, that's an excellent one. Christian Standard Bible is a good one. Often people who struggle with understanding the Bible like the New Living Translation, or some people really like the Message, the translation that Eugene Peterson put together. I find it very helpful. The more I've read it, the more helpful I've found it. So find one that you will benefit from. You don't get anything out of the Bible if you don't get anything out of the Bible. What I mean by that is if you, if you choose a translation that's too hard to understand, like when I was a kid, I was dumb. I'm not a lot smarter now, but I was dumb when I was a kid. And I thought, well, I'm gonna I'm going to do the hardest thing possible. And in that time, the hardest thing possible for me to understand was the King James Version. And so I determined I was going to read the Bible all the way through in the King James Version, and I did. Well, that didn't mean I got a lot out of it, but it also was true that there weren't a lot of translations to choose from in those days, so I was kind of stuck. But don't fall into that trap. Don't choose a translation because you think, well, it's, it's difficult and it's hard. I'll get more out of it. No, nah, choose one that you can understand, that you can grasp. Okay, so enough of that. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that's the reading of the Ascension story from Acts chapter 1. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked by this, but I do want to point out a, a, an important and an interesting idea here. So at the end of Acts chapter 1, verse 11, it talks about how that they saw Jesus go up, and then the two white-robed men stood there with them. And they said to them, Jesus will come back in the same way you've seen him go. Now, a couple of things remind us there. One, remember there were there was a white-robed person at the tomb uh, when Jesus was resurrected. And now here they're described as two men in white robes. And they're saying he's going to come back the same way you did, saw him go. Now, in Zechariah, there is a passage that says Jesus will return on the Mount of Olives. So isn't that fascinating that often when we look at a new testament story and and when it's a little unusual or striking like this one that we can begin to think about what does the old testament tell us about some of these things and lo and behold in zechariah i believe it's chapter 14 there's a reference that jesus will come back with the mount of olives so i say all that to say this don't don't forget when you come across a a bit of a challenging spot in the Bible, don't forget that often you can think about what what precedent there was or what similar event happened in the Old Testament. And we want to look at some of those today because they help us understand the Ascension story, and we don't want to miss out on that. So a few things, and I want, to, I want to go back to Luke chapter 24 to, to think about these. And I'd encourage you to think along with me. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44 we began the story and then at one point in verse 45 it says Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures isn't that fascinating isn't that remarkable and wouldn't that be the kind of prayer a lot of us should pray that that God would open our minds ...today to understand the Scriptures. For without... ...the revelation of God, we wouldn't know God. And I don't think we should miss that idea. I also think we should not miss... ...the similarity of that... ...event... ...there just before Jesus goes back to heaven... ...to the story of the men... ...on the Emmaus Road. Remember, they were walking along... ...and Jesus joins them. They didn't know who he was. They walked quite a long time. They stopped... ...for the night at a village... They're sitting down to have a meal, and Jesus takes the initiative to pick up the bread and to bless it and to break it. And as he gave it to them, their eyes were opened, and they understood it was Jesus. I I don't think we should miss that. I don't think we should miss asking the Lord to open the eyes of people who are not seeing him. Ask the Lord to open our eyes. Where are our blind spots? We need the Lord to give us insights that we might not otherwise have. And I don't think it's inappropriate to ask for that. I don't think it's, it's at all beyond us to think that we need the Lord's help. We need the insight of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus began to give them insight and he began to talk to them from the scriptures. And this is the other thing I want us to notice from here. He talked to them from the scriptures about the Messiah. We live in a time when every now and then I will hear word of, I don't know that I've ever heard it for myself because I'm usually at my church doing what I need to do, but I will hear of ministers or other religious leaders who want to tell people that we need to focus on the New Testament and don't worry about the Old Testament. Well, that's just baloney. By the way, that word baloney, that's a theological word. You can use it often. It's just baloney that we shouldn't pay attention to the Old Testament. Because here, that's exactly what Jesus did. He used what we call the Old Testament to explain Messiah, to explain himself. Specifically, it mentions that he referred to the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Now, the Psalms were the most prominent collection of of literature in what God's people called the writings. So the reference to the Psalms would have meant reference to the writings so we have the law of moses the five books genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy law of moses we have the prophets all of the prophets and we have all of the writings the other things like psalms and proverbs and the other writings that were in the, in the collection of the hebrew scriptures and jesus used those to explain himself now what did he mean by that well, I, I I was really thinking about it. Thought I sure would like to know. I'd like to have the outline of Jesus' talk at that point, wouldn't you? To know what he said. I began to think about that. Now, what might he have meant? And and I don't know. I can only guess. And so I did a little bit. I said, well, in Genesis, which was the law of Moses, in Genesis, in in chapters one through three, we we are. Learn about creation, and we learn about sin, and we learn about the promise of a Savior. Because tucked away in those early verses, we learn about sin because Adam and Eve didn't do what God said. And we learn that they were lied to by the tempter, and they believed him. And then later God comes along and says to the tempter that someday one will come that will crush your head. That's the way it's described, and that's a reference to Messiah. I don't know if Jesus said that at that time, but I wonder. Go a little farther in, in Genesis, and you discover the story of Abraham agreeing to enter into covenant with God. And you've heard me say this before, probably, that I think covenant is the most important and insightful description of how God wants to relate to people. Because when people entered into covenant, when two households entered into covenant, it was because they wanted to. There was a desire to intermingle their lives. We would call that love. The two households loved each other and they realized they were better together than separate. And so God comes along and he wants to express his love to us and says to to Abram, I want to be your covenant partner. And Abram agrees and they go through this elaborate ceremony in Genesis 15. And Abram becomes Abraham. And God begins to explain and unfold the future to him. A little while later, we see a sad story, the difficult story of, uh, of Isaac. And Abraham takes him up on the mountain. And even in that story, Abraham says God will provide the sacrifice for himself. And later, God did. His name was Jesus. Messiah came. Well, we read the story of Noah in Genesis, and I'm skipping around a little bit, but bear with me. We read the story of Noah, God demonstrating in that story his rigorous dealing with sin, how he was grieved that he had made people and he had to destroy the world with sin. And, And yet, even though the righteous were saved, Noah and his family we discover shortly after the floodwaters recede that sin was a stowaway on the ark because some grievous things happened and the problem of sin remained. Well, God continued to work through all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. And and then along we fast forward to the Exodus story. And it's the story of God's salvation, his liberation for his people. Remember, Moses goes back to to Pharaoh and says let my people go and uh, Pharaoh says not a chance. Well, that's the kind of short version of it and they go back and forth and God Demonstrates to Pharaoh and to his people and to everybody there that he was God and He gets them out of Egypt He liberates his people. It's the story of God saving his people from slavery It's a parallel story to God saving his people from sin And we celebrate that exodus because God came for his people and he delivered them. And one of the important things to remember is that God said through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Let my people go so they may worship me. We sometimes forget that the story of Exodus was salvation, but it was also religious liberty. And we shouldn't forget that. I don't know if Jesus told that story or not. I don't know if he skipped around like I am. But Jesus did explain from the scriptures. Now, we turn to the prophets, and, and wow, there's a lot of stuff you can talk about in the prophets, and, and you hardly know where to begin. One of the sure things that we need to recognize about prophets is that they were the foretellers. They said to the people, here's what God says. They were the ones who warned the people if they got off track. And sometimes they did get off track. And so the prophets were sent by God to talk straight to the people and say, you need to, you need to change. You need to repent. You need to get right with God. You need to, to be faithful to the covenant. And many times they did for a while, and then they turned away another time. That was an important thing for the, for the prophets. They wanted the people to turn to God so that God could bless them. That was God's desire to bless his people and make all the nations blessed through his people. Well, there's another interesting part of the prophets that, again, here I skip back to Samuel. And a lot of people remember Samuel the prophet, and they remember the story of his birth and how his mother pleaded for him, and God God answered her prayer, no doubt about it. And, And Samuel was the prophet that the people came to and said, hey, we want a king. We want to be like the other people around us, and we want a king. And Samuel said, no, you don't. You don't want a king. Um, He was trying to help them understand what God was saying, that they don't want a king. It's going to turn out badly for you. You don't want a king. Well, kind of a lesson there for us, that we shouldn't tell God what we want when God said it's not good for us. How many times do we tell God we want something? And God said, that's not good for you, so give it up. Well, they didn't give it up, and God finally relented and gave them a king. First king was Saul, and he didn't turn out very well at all. started out like he had great promise, anointed by God, all the stuff. But he didn't stay faithful, and it turned out badly for the people. turned out badly for kings in general, but there was one that stood above the rest. His name was David. And David became kind of an an imaginary messiah. Well, imaginary, wrong word. David became a type of messiah, someone that they could look to and say, that's the way it should be with a king like David. Because during David's reign, it was the best of times for the whole kingdom of Israel. And so David, as an example, pointed to the better king, Messiah and the prophet said the Messiah would come from the lineage of David so it's not at all out of character to say David pointed to a better day coming when Messiah would come well skip again to another point after a a while God's people had so messed up that God said enough and he sent them into exile and you can read the story of Daniel and about how Daniel and the other men from the royal court in Jerusalem survived and thrived in the Babylonian court and represented God. And and maybe even, and I don't know how to prove this, but there's plenty of evidence to think that this might have happened. Maybe even pointed the Babylonian people in the direction of Messiah so that they, one day, would recognize him. And that may be where the wise men came from, and it may be why the wise men were even watching for the birth of Messiah. So the prophets, there's a lot of things you can talk about. I don't know what Jesus did, those are a few ideas. And then then the writings, and Jesus said the Psalms, meaning the writings, Psalms represented him. What better description of Messiah is the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, from Psalm 23 points to Messiah. Did Jesus use that? I don't know. Maybe he used Psalm 22, and he quoted Psalm 22 from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very pivotal event. And in Isaiah 53, well, that's a classic passage of describing the Messiah as despised and rejected, describing the horrors that the Messiah would suffer so that the people could be saved. All of these are potential things Jesus might have used. I don't know what he used. I sure would like to have the outline. But I'm not going to have it. You're not going to have it. Maybe maybe one day we can go to the library in heaven and find the outline. I don't know. But uh, it does fascinate me to think that Jesus used the, the, what we call the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings, to explain the coming of Messiah. Well, we also see in, in uh, pardon me, Luke chapter 24 that Jesus talks about the Messiah very specifically suffering and rising from the dead on the third day so that repentance and forgiveness of sin could be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Well, that's a very significant thing we should not overlook. It's related to Jesus' last words before he ascends to heaven. And he essentially says to us, that we need to tell people, change your life and believe in Jesus. Jesus, the new king, is coming. And Jesus, who can forgive sins because he satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. He satisfied the penalty of violating covenant. We have all sinned, the, procl- the proclamation goes. And yet Jesus came to atone for that sin so that we could have a new life. And he calls us to repent, to change our lives, to turn from our evil ways, from our wicked ways, from our sin, and allow him to forgive us and give us a new life. Then very soon afterwards, they go out to the Mount of Olives, on the way to Bethany, and Jesus ascends to be with the Father. Now, again, quite an unusual event. Quite an unusual event. But wait a minute. Do you remember in Genesis chapter five, there was a man named Enoch who was described as he walked with God and was no more. It's as though, and it doesn't say ascended. I get that. But it's as though God just took him and he did. God is asking us to turn from everything else and put him first and to find our motivation for doing right and avoiding wrong in the fact that he is enough and we can love him, and he will return that love for us. He's for us, not against us. I'm Pastor Rick.